You are listening to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Chthonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin McLeod. Hello, and welcome to Chthonia, the podcast dealing with the Dark Feminine. My name's Breach Burke, and I'm your host. This week, we're going to talk about the Egyptian goddess Tawaret. Now, last time we talked about Sekhmet, and Tawaret is actually connected to Sekhmet. Uh, she is considered to be a particular aspect of Sekhmet when, uh, when Sekhmet, as the Eye of Ra, uh, gets angry and kind of goes on her rampage. And then when she goes away and comes back, she comes back uh, as, as, as a deity that floods the Nile. And in this form, she is considered to be Tawaret. Now, Tawaret is, an, is a separate deity in her own right. And she is, she is somewhat unique in that she has, she's, she's kind of a household deity, but her origins are actually demonic in nature. Uh, Tawaret is associated with, she's considered to be the spouse of either the god Set or the god uh, Apep. And both of those are considered to be very negative forces in ancient Egypt. Uh, Apep, of course, is the serpent who tries to destroy Ra uh, as he goes on his night journey every night on his barge. Um, Apep always tries to kill Ra. And, the, and, of course, her relationship to Set has a lot to do with the fact that uh, Set could change himself into the form of a hippo. And hippos were, you know, male hippos in particular, were associated with chaos. Now, Tawaret herself is a female hippo. Uh, she has the, the way she is described. Let me see if I have her physical description here. Um, let's see. Yes, she is depicted as a bipedal female hippopotamus with feline attributes. So she has cat-like or lion-like attributes which would connect her to Sekhmet or perhaps to Bastet. Uh, pendulous female human breasts, the limbs and paws of a lion, and the back and tail of a Nile crocodile. So she's something of a, of a chimera. She's this, um, you know, multi-formed, um, you know, she seems, she's represented by these sort of multiple animals. And her, again, her original, her original role was probably demonic in nature. Um, it was said that <clears throat> before her her period of worship, she was she was seen as the spouse of Apep. So if Apep was the destroyer or, or the one whose evil came by night, and and Apep could only move about by night, then uh, Tawaret had been considered the evil that would move about by day. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, now the fa- again the fact that she's both a, she has uh, attributes of both a hippopotamus. And a crocodile, like she has these kind of uh, multi, multiple, um, you know, the associations with her with her iconography. Uh, at these different times, this is probably what has associated her with Set in some uh, versions of the myth, and others with Apep. It's really Plutarch who talks about the uh, Seth connection, and we're going to talk about all of those. Um, but I want to start with some more. More general discussion first. Um, now, Tawaret means she who is great or simply the great one. And in this respect, it's very similar to the way in which the Furies or the Arrhenius were called the kindly ones, or the way in which the spirits of the dead in Rome were also referred to as, uh, you know, dismanibus, you know, the, the, the kindly ones. 
And the idea was that they were not really very kindly at all, or that they were very ferocious, and that these were epithets said to to placate them, to, you know, the, the, as I've, I've said, it's kind of the nice doggy thing, you know. I think Sarah Isles Johnston had had a better characterization, you know, um, you know, when you're when you're talking to your dean and you need money, you can't you can't address him as you tight-fisted bureaucrat. <laughs> you have to address them, you know, very you know very kindly, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, well, kind and generous, sir. So, so Tawaret is is one of those names that suggests uh, a being with a very ferocious nature. Now, because the, the hippopotamus form here is extremely important. Um, the, there's a there's evidence that there was hippos in the Nile uh, well before the dawn of um, the early dynastic period, which is about 3000 BCE. So hippos were around in Egypt and in the river before that time, and they have very violent and aggressive behavior. Um, now, particularly the females um, are aggressive. Not that the males can't be aggressive, but the males were more known to lie down sort of in front of the females, you know, to to get gain their acceptance. Um, and the female hippos were extremely fiercely protective of their young. And this is where I think her, her main attribute comes from, is that she is, um, you know, because her main role has to do with the protection of children. There's household furniture, um, amulets, um, all kinds of protective things with the image of Tawaret on them. Because the idea was that having her image was enough to uh, protect her children. She is, um, she's also was known as the mistress of the pure water. And this is considered to be a reference to childbirth, but also because Tawaret was featured in um, funerary texts having to do with, you know, preparing the, the dead soul for their, their new life in, in the other world, shall we say, or the underworld. So she has a lot to do with the birth. She has to do a lot with birth and rebirth. And she actually, there's actually uh, four hippo goddesses um, who are all very similar, and some scholars even think are to some degree interchangeable, since they all seem to be female household deities that have to do with protection of children in particular. Um, now, in addition to her protective role and her role as this mistress of pure water, uh, Tawaret is also linked to the northern sky, particularly the, the const between the constellations of the Big Dipper and Draco. Um, they, the Egyptians interpret that a little differently. They interpret that image as that of Tawaret, and near her is the foot of her of her what, what was then considered to be her husband Seth, um, or Set. Now, you know, and and that and that was the way that was interpreted, because uh, the northern skies were where both Apep and Set ruled, this sort of horizon place, and so Tawaret was sort of seen as a, a restraining influence. Um, and I'm going to tell that specific myth, because that's a myth that has to do directly with Set. Um, okay, just trying to see where, where I would like to start. Um, yeah, some of, her, some of her history I'm just going to talk about, uh, continue to talk about. So a protective amulets with Tawaret on them have been found as back as far as the pre-dynastic period, okay, so about 3000 to 2680 BCE. And the tradition of wearing them continued all the way through sort of Roman occupation of Egypt around um, up to about almost 400 CE. So 
It was also around for a long time, and even during the um, Armada period, which is when um, Akhenaten de declared the, the worship of Aten, you know, as, as the sun disk, as being the only god that could be worshipped and, you know, getting rid of all the others, um, often hailed as an early monotheism, but of course that he was, that, that, that didn't last long. Uh, you, you still saw that uh, Tawaret images, were, they were even in the temple of Aten. That's how powerful she was considered to be. And she was considered to be a, um, a protector, and eventually a protector of the sun god as well. Because in later years, her, there was a temple built to her and to the other hippo goddesses uh, right at the place where it was believed that the sun, you know, the sun barge came out again to be reborn in the morning. So they had these protective mothers overlooking the, the newly born sun every day. Um, now, just just going through this, uh, she's, she's closely grouped with and indist often ugh, indistinguishable from several other protective hippo goddesses, Ip Ipet, Riret, and Hejet. Okay. Um, now, Ipet name means the nurse, okay, which would have to do with like midwifery, childbirth, child rearing. Uh, Reret means the sow, and this may come from the fact that Egypt, Egyptians referred to hippopotami as um, water pigs. And Hejet's name actually means the white one, and no one's really quite sure why, like what, what that means. Could be a reference to mother's milk as being white. I don't know. That's not, that's not any, there's no, no real scholarly evidence for that, but it's possible. Um, and really this cult takes off sort of in the old kingdom. Okay, so this is, um, you know, it, it's, it's specifically mentioned uh, in the pyramid texts of these particular goddesses. And Ipet in particularly um, is demonstrates her role. This is from um, Spell 269 in the Pyramid Text. Announces the deceased king will suck on the goddess's white, dazzling, sweet milk when he ascends to the heavens. Okay. And the idea was that they were protectors of the pharaoh as well, or as nurses to the pharaohs. Um, now, the other association with Tawaret, especially by the Middle Kingdom period, which is about 2055 to 1650 BCE, um, that's when you started to see more of this devotion to her. And you had, there was a, a magical object. It was a kind of a wand or a knife that was made from a hippopotamus ivory uh, that was used as, um, for the protection of infants. It was kind of part of these birthing rituals is that they had this protective knife. Um, but as they mentioned, also during this period, she became a funerary deity um, because there was a practice of placing hippopotami decorated with um, the local flora in tombs and temples. Uh, and so, again, there's, there's probably this, this sense that uh, Tawaret not only dealt with birth, but also with rebirth at, at the time of death. Now, in the New Kingdom period, 1550 to 1069, roughly, uh, household deities like Tawaret um, became even more important. Um, and then, you know, the Armana period falls in here about 1352 to 1336. And as I had mentioned, she's still recognized in that period of time. Um, now, another, how, there's another hippo goddess who appears at this time called Amit, and Tawaret and Amit are not the same. Amit is a devourer of um, the unjust. You, you know, will not allow them to pass into the afterlife. She devours them first. So Amit is actually very directly a destructive goddess. Um, Tawaret, in spite of her, <clears throat> um, her sort of demonic origins, she, she ends up being more of a protective deity. 
And we can kind of reflect on that in the sense that these kind of dark, monstrous female figures, one of the attributes that they are said to have that is quote-unquote motherly is that they are ferociously protective of their own and of the young. And in this case would be of, of the Egyptian royalty or perhaps of, at some point of the average Egyptian person. You know, um, she had, had a lot to do with, you know, seeing to, to both parts of the life spectrum, you know, the, the birth and the death part. Okay. Um, now, Tawaret has also, it's been noted that she was worshipped outside Egypt to a certain degree. Uh, certain religions in the Levantine region of the sort of, uh, you know, this, um, you know, what you kind of think of Asia Minor type of area, um, Crete, she actually became, uh, was, you know, there are images of her seen in Minoan Crete, uh, you know, again, where she has, where she's um, known as the Minoan genius. And again, this was primarily, she was seen in amulets, but her, and with her, you know, her image was slightly altered because she fit more into the Minoan iconography, but um, but nonetheless, it is definitely the same goddess. The Nubians also adopted um, Tawaret, um, which is they, they Nubia is doing directly to the south of Egypt, and uh, you know, and she ended up becoming a part of the pantheon there. Um, there, she's also connected to the Phoenician goddess of pregnancy called Dea Gravida. Um, so we see all of these associations. We see that she's a, a popular deity, but in spite of her very ferocious nature, um, there, unlike the Furies and like the others, she's not generally feared. It's more that she's more of a sort of like a protective mother that one runs to to you know to save them from harm. Like you know, it, it's like it's like having, in a way, I think of it's it was sort of like when you had the you know, the older brother or something, or the older, usually, I think in our culture, it'd be the older brother who people were scared of, you know, so they, you know, so if you got bullied, you know, your big brother would come and beat them up. I mean, she has that kind of, that kind of a thing to her, only, you know, far more serious, because she's, her attributes suggest that she could be an extremely formidable uh, opponent. Um, okay, so let's talk about her mythology a little bit. So the Eye of Ra, I had mentioned this one uh, at the beginning, she's featured in some versions of this myth in which the Eye of Ra becomes angry with her father, who is Ra, you know, who's the god, sun god Ra, and she retreats to Nubia in the form of a lioness. Okay, so that's, um, you know, so in a way that's really Tawaret and Sekhmet are actually the same there. And upon the Eye of Ra's eventual return to Egypt, she assumes the form of a hippopotamus and consequently brings the flooding of the Nile. Now, again, flooding can be a destructive act, but it can also be a creative one. It can actually, um, the flooding of the Nile is considered a very much anticipated event, because if it doesn't happen, then that means Egypt is suffering drought, and, um, and then people starve. So the flooding is very important. Um, so this may be where she gets her title, the Mistress of the Pure Water. It may also have to do with her role in cleansing bodies after, you know, the, the, the the dead person, you know, to get them ready, you know, for their next life. It can also have to do with the water that's involved in childbirth or the water that's in the womb at childbirth. Um, there's, there's all kinds of possibilities for where that comes from. But I think it's important to, and, and this is not the first time I've reflected on this in this podcast, is the, the role of water in mythology. Um, floods especially, or these, these kinds of waters, they... Um, 
they regress everything. You know, uh, there, there's kind of a regressive tendency when, when a, you know, when, when the land floods, what's left when it recedes is usually, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it, it, it takes the land, it takes, it removes things and takes it back. It's not like fire that when it burns, it's like it, you know, it just kind of raises everything to the ground. Water kind of has a regressive function. And I think it's, it's very, you know, there's, there's definitely, if you think about flood mythology, you know, we, and, and the great floods that were mentioned in, you know, we, we, of course, again, the Noah story being the most common one, but it's not just the Noah story. It's also the story of, you know, the um, Utnapishtim and um, uh, Atrahasis in the, in the Babylonian Sumerian versions of that myth, or uh, Deucalion and Pyrrha in the Greek version of that myth, where there's this great flood, in each of these cases, and with this great flood uh, comes, you know, it, it's it's usually because there's some kind of, you know, either there's some kind of a corruption. The Babylonian myth's a little different. It's more like trying to thin out an overpopulation. But there's still the sense of too much of something or an imbalance of something. So the floodwaters come and they destroy everything and then allow for renewal. Um, you see this in the, in the Odyssey, too. Um Odysseus after all of his, you know, journeys to these different islands and then his men eat the, the cattle from the, the island of Helios and, you know, Zeus ends up destroying their boat and he's, he's, he's floating around in the water with uh, holding one plank from his boat and that's, that's symbolic as well. Here's this man who was like this great seasoned warrior who, you know, great king and he had everything and now here he is and, and, then, and then when he finds, he lands on Ithaca, not Ithaca, um, Ithaca's where he's, uh, he's from, um, the island of where Calypso is. Um, and now I'm not thinking of the name of it off the top of my head. But so he he he's with her. He's he's stuck with her for about seven years, and then when he finally uh, was able to leave again, Poseidon becomes angry because he's he's ticked off Poseidon, and Poseidon again destroys his little raft, and then he washes up on the shores of the island of Sherry, where he meets um, like a 12 year old princess who's out there doing laundry. Yes, I know we don't think of princesses as doing laundry. But that's what she she's out there doing that. And, and then there's this sort of like half naked man, like washed up on the sh shore, looking to this little child for help. So there, there's an image of rebirth for you um, and kind of being taken down. And that's that's kind of the sense of the flood. It's the idea that it just it, it just reduces everything. So to be the mistress of pure water um, it, it, that, you know, there's there's that aspect of it, it, it with the flood. But it's also. Um, the purification part would have to do with the idea of water as, you know, getting rid of what's corrupt and sort of making things new again. Um, that's why water is used in baptisms. You know, it's the idea that you are, you know, there's a rebirth that's going on. So she tends to be associated with that. Um, okay, now the constellation having to do with Tolerate, um, <clears throat> it's, uh, let's see. Yeah, this, this image of her um, in, in the skies, I mentioned by sort of the Big Dipper and what we think of as Draco, the dragon now, uh, those constellations in the north. Uh, I'm just going to read notes here. Um, the, the image of this astral towerette appears almost exclusively next to the Setian uh, foreleg of a bull. So this has to do with the god Set. Um, the latter image represents the Big Dipper and is associated with Egyptian god of chaos and storms uh, Set. The relationship between the two images is discussed in the Book of Day and Night, which is another of the Egyptian texts from the 20th dynasty, which is about 1186 to 1069 BCE. And what the text says, translated, obviously, 
As to this foreleg of Seth, it is in the northern sky, tied down to two mooring posts by a flint of flint by a chain of gold. It is entrusted to Isis as a hippopotamus guarding it. Now, this is an obvious reference to Towerette, um, but it's not uncommon at this point to refer to, especially in that particular period of history, to refer to everything in terms of, um, uh, you know, the, the most prominent or most popular mother goddess. Probably in this case, you have Isis, you have Hathor, um, and there are occasions where Towerette is expressed as a form of one of those goddesses. So that's what happens here. Um, and and there and it's noted that at, at certain point Towerette's images eventually had the sun disk on top of her head, so that would of course equate her with both Isis and Hathor, both of who wear the sun disk on their uh, headdress. Um, now, what is the myth that's associated with that? Um, well, let's see. I have uh, made a note of it here. Yeah, it's. Um, <laughs> I have, I'm able to actually print things out again, so I have notes um, in front of me. Okay, yeah, Plutarch, that's where I wanted to go back to. Uh, Plutarch describes Towera as a concubine of Set, okay? So she is the, the spouse, concubine, what, whatever, of, of the god of chaos, um, who had changed her ways, he said. She's, you know, she, rather than, than side with evil, she decides to side um, with good, and you know, and she became a follower of the god Horus, the, the divine child. Uh, now, in this form, it said she was linked to Isis, um, and she thought that she kept Seth uh, fettered, um, Seth's powers of evil fettered by a chain. So this gold chain is one that's put um, on Seth by his wife. In fact, there's another account that I read that noted that um, Seth, Seth was actually considered to be an impotent god, and he was powerless... Um, you know, to, um, you know, and he, you know, he was powerless enough that his own wife, Towerette, although she's, she's a pretty formidable creature. He, and, and Set did take, as I mentioned, did take the form of a hippo. So, and as I've noted, the male hippos tended to be somewhat passive in the face of the females. So there may be that, that comparison to those deities. But she chained Set up so that he cannot attack um, Isis and her new child, Horus, when Horus is finally born. Because if you know the myth of Isis and Osiris and Set, you know that Set is Osiris's brother, and you know Osiris is the king. But you know, Set does not want. You know, Set Set is is jealous. He's fighting, sort of fighting his brother for the kingship, and he ends up uh, having this contest with the sarcophagus, and whoever can lay down. And of course, it's built to Osiris's specifications. But um, and it was kind of like, oh, whoever fits into it. It's kind of like a Cinderella story. Whoever fit, whoever the shoe fits, you know, they're they're the winner. And, but in this case, you could win. You can win this sarcophagus for yourself. This beautiful one, apparently made out of this very beautiful, um, fragrant wood. And of course, when Set gets into, not Set, Osiris, when he gets into it and he fits into it, Set slams the lid on it and throws it down the Nile. And now, um, you know, and and you know, his body ends up being cut into many pieces. And then Isis goes on her journey, to, uh, which is quite similar to Demeter's journey um, to find Persephone in a lot of ways. Uh, there, there's, there's very similar qualities to those stories, but Isis eventually, you know, finds the sarcophagus and, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, where her, that her husband was in and it somehow ends up, it was, ends up in a tree that ends up in the, um, Pharaoh's palace. And so she disguises herself as a nursemaid. That's a story that's very similar to the Demeter one. 
and then uh, eventually she the pharaoh's wife finds out who she is and she tells her look i i want this this one pillar or stele that you have here because my husband's inside there um but of course osiris is dead and so she does her spells to bring him back to life and she has sex with him and the child horus is produced so um and, and seth of course there's there's a whole uh, enmity between seth and horus and um you know and their their claims for for kingship and so forth so yeah so so in in light in the context of that story um when horus is born to isis you know when when um set is not able to prevent this then she then then Tawaret, uh sides with isis and horus and decides to protect the child by chaining her husband by a cold chain so he can't go and cause any mischief okay so um, and yeah, and, and, and related to that story, um, and there's one in the Metternich Stela, it says uh, Isis tells Horus that he was reared by a sow and a dwarf, referring to Tawaret and another god, demon god like uh, Tawaret called Bess. Bess is usually portrayed as a dwarf. Um, so they're, they're, they're rather, um, they're demon gods, but they're also uh, fierce fighters of demons as well. So they, it, it reminds me of the... Um, so the way some of the matrikas are actually in the sense that they are considered to be ferocious goddesses in their own right but when you read them in the epics they are you know they're 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 chaotic for you know they're 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 their ferocious and formidable force is used to uh fight against the demons uh, who have taken over and who have set things out of balance so Tawaret does it, it's not it is a very similar pattern when you have a very um strong feminine figure, uh, this strong feminine figure, um, or this powerful or scary monstrous female goddess, um, that, that they become kind of an icon of protection. So rather than battling the goddess, you know, you run, run to it and say, you know, save me from the front, save me from what's scary. So, okay. Let me just see what else I want to, to look at here. Um, there's not a whole lot that's said about her connection to Apep, other than it's, that at a certain point she was considered to be the quote-unquote evil that, that went by day. But there's not really a lot that survives about the idea of Tawaret as an evil goddess. Um, she does remind me a little bit of Hecate in the sense that she is a... Um, I mean, she's, she does have associations with magic. She does have associations with the underworld and, and magic spells, you know, to safely reach the Western land. And like Hecate, Hecate serves as a guide to the underworld and also is, is a mistress of magic. So she has some very similar attributes to Tawaret. And Hecate, also like Tawaret, um, she, her image was, would be put in front of houses uh, in Greece and in, and in other, um, you know, locales, you know, that influenced by Greek um, you know, by Greek religion, you know, Hecate would be, you know, the triple form of her would be placed there as, as, a, as a protection on the household and the family, just as Tawaret's image was. Now, Tawaret is not a triple goddess. Um, you, you know, she's, she's part of a sort of, um, I guess, a quartet of, of hippo goddesses, but, but she's not, you know, so she, so she doesn't have that aspect. But there is that idea of this um, female under, you know, deity with a connection to the underworld and the other world who is protecting um, okay, so let me see what else I have here on her. Yes, she was the, um, yes, guard to the mountains of the west. And 
yes, and her connection to to Set and to Apep. Um, I think I want to see the. I think the only other thing that um, I would want to mention here is the. You know, it's it, it's just very it's very interesting that that this is a case. A lot of times we have cases where you have goddesses that perhaps. Uh, okay, just to use the example of the Arrhenius. The Arrhenius were originally um, considered to, were portrayed as beautiful women, and then later were kind of portrayed as these, these, these haggish kind of monsters. And Talaret, I think, has always been fairly consistent in her imagery, but it's interesting how in her case she's gone from being what was considered to be an evil goddess because of her ferocity to being a, um, to being a, a protective goddess to be a quote-unquote good goddess, um, one that um, one that was whose whose energies I suppose were used for protective purposes rather than um, as you know rather than seeing curses or spells saying you know keep this keep this being away from me. It was more a case of um, appealing and saying oh you're a great kindly one please protect me and my family just as the hippo. The, 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 the real hippo protects, protects a uh, female hippo, protects their young, you know, use that same ferocity to protect my young so that, um, you know, they are not harmed. Um, and so, so it's interesting because we also see something like that in India as well. You have these goddesses that have these very um, sort of dark and scary associations, but what what ends up happening to them when in the brahmin religion is that they become you know these these so-called demonic figures become demon fighters themselves so they're actually in that respect considered to be auspicious it's the same thing these are the goddesses that you show respect to and that are protective and it's very interesting how in the west um our conception of that um that feminine whether it be a benign feminine or a scary one and as we're as we're seeing in a lot of the goddesses of the Near East, um, it, they're not uh, they're the neuro mixture. Even even love goddesses or goddesses of you know very gentle things. There's very few that are really just you know 100% beneficent. Um, you know, like in, in Hinduism, which of course is the Far East, um, but you know Mahalakshmi might be an example of a, of an all good goddess. But but generally speaking. They all kind of have a mixture of attributes, and some of them are darker than others, um, even even among the Olympian um, goddesses. You know, you're, you know, Aphrodite, Athena, Artemis. They're all and Hera, of course. They all are, in spite of their their very respected and civilized roles. Um, it's very clear that they they also have um, sides that can be absolutely terrifying, and that the worshiper would you know, want to do what they could to be spared from the, from the wrath of these deities because they all express their wrath in a different way. So here, so, so it's interesting to see both in Egypt and in, in India where this um, scary feminine energy is sort of um, channeled into the role of, of, of protection um, or curse-breaking or, or things like that, whereas in the West, um, all of the feminine is taken and is made into this, you know, um, you know, all feminine is somewhat is demonized in its own way, um, as being, you know, except for the form that is um, chaste, obedient, submissive, 
um, that's non th that's completely non-threatening. So now you have this idea of you know the one who who totally submits um, to the male god, and that 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 form is acceptable in most cases. You know until you get to Protestantism where we're not going to have any of the Virgin Mary or the saints or any of that kind of stuff, right? Um, where 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 that religion becomes very ultimately masculinized. It's literally all about the text. It's all about the intellect. It's all about the theology and rationalizing of the religion. And all of the feminine element is just completely taken out. So it's, you know, um, and it becomes sterile in that case. Um, it, it's already kind of watered down when you get to a kind of religious system where the feminine is you know, is, is merely this, you know, submissive, obedient. I mean, in the Catholic Church, it's not that the Virgin Mary doesn't have power. Um, obviously, she has a tremendous um, power of intercession and so forth. But the Virgin Mary is not a goddess herself. She's a, she's a mortal who has been, you know, exalted through her, through the role that she plays. And so she's like a great saint is what she is. And, you know, saints do become kind of like in their own way, like minor deities. That's one of the criticisms that frequently come up um, of the Catholic Church. Um, but the thing is, it's, it's, the, it's these forces, and we live in a culture where those forces are either, like I said, we're either demonized, you know, they, they go on to become, uh, they take the names of, of the, the prominent goddesses and make them demonic names, um, or, you know, their associations start to, you know, come with, you know, these, this, this host of demons um, or succubi, succubi or, you know, these, these kinds of figures, like your, your, your Lilith demon figures, if you will, that are either seductive or they are, they are evil in some other fashion. Um, they could be child stealers. They could be, um, you know, um, bringers of death or, or, you know, you know, cursing people, you know, destroying their prosperity, only seen in a very negative context. Um, again, unless, unless they are the feminine portraying a certain kind of uh, submissive or, you know, role. That, that, tends to, that tends to happen in the West. So, um, so I don't know. I think there's something to be learned there from the way that, you know, that Egypt and the Far East have dealt with at that feminine energy. It's, it's not been, um, it's not something to conquer. It's not something to be, um, you know, the, the, with, you know, put the boot on, you know, and, um, force it into submission. Even though we, we do see mythologies of, of that kind of, you know, that thing that the, the, the hero mythologies of, you know, the hero battling with the dragon hero battling with that. Um, it also occurs to me, speaking in that context too, I don't want to forget to mention this, is that when we talk about hippos, we talk about, um, I, I can't help but think of behemoth. Uh, we talk about Leviathan and behemoth, which are these biblical um, monsters. Um, Leviathan being like a great water monster and behemoth being a great land monster. And behemoth was, of different forms attributed to behemoth, the main one is that of a hippo. So, so in, in, in this sort of Semitic religion, um, that this hippopotamus image is violent and it's, it's considered to be, um, you know, the idea is that Christ conquers both Leviathan and Behemoth and serves them at a feast, you know, um, after the last days, you know, that this is a, um, you know, they're going to feast upon the, the, the bodies of, of these, of these creatures. And so, so again, there's this idea of conquering this energy. Now, it's not, I, I don't quite remember if Behemoth is portrayed as a masculine or feminine hippo. 
Um, but either way, there's there, there's definitely that sense of this um, scary kind of violent force. And we, we have a way of approaching it in the West. I mean, there's the idea of the hero, you know, quote-unquote, doing battle or being swallowed by the monster or, you know, and having to disgorge themselves. There's a lot of symbolism that, that goes with that. But in, in all of that fray, there tends to be a forgetting that that powerful force uh, is represent, representative of something that is at the core of our being and at the core of our consciousness. Um, this feminine energy that's, you know, like Tolaret, which has to do with birth and death. I mean, these, these, are, these are forces fundamental to you and to your, uh, the, your very consciousness um, at its root. I mean, you know, g- getting away from, you know, all other kinds of inflections or, or, or biological interpretations or things, you know, it's, it's back to the concept of, that, that referred to in Hinduism as Shakti. It's the, it's that supreme primal force that's, a, that's expressed as something feminine. So I think that's all I want to say on Tawaret. I'll keep this one reasonably short. Um, this is, this is my short foray into Egyptian mythology. I may, um, look at some others, uh, next year as things go on because now we're going to be going into the month of December where I would like to start talking about, um, you know, the, a couple, you look at a couple of um, winter goddesses or, or winter folk tales having to do with uh, the feminine and winter in particular. And we're not necessarily talking about old hags here. Um, we did talk about winter hags last year, um, but this time I think I want to talk about, <clears throat> we're going to be talking about a couple of other Scandinavian deities. Um, well, we're going to talk about Skadi, um, the, the Scandinavian giantess who uh, is considered to be the winter goddess. And also we're going to look at the Snow Queen, um, that particular folktale, um, and the inflections that are in there. So with that, I want to thank you again for listening. Um, if you'd like to support this podcast, please go to patreon.com slash chthonia. Um, there's, you know, members are getting um, some other benefits. You know, I, you know, sometimes I have free giveaways, discounts on classes and books and things that I'm, do- that I'm doing. Um and also uh, special podcasts that, you know, that may relate to subjects I've talked about in the main podcast, but I may do something a little more in-depth in a podcast for patrons only. So if that interests you, uh, please, you know, please subscribe there, patreon.com slash chthonia. Um, all of my work is on chthonia.net, um, even in, in, in chthonia.net, which has my podcasts, it has my written work. Um, you know, I do blog there occasionally. I, I don't blog there maybe as often as I would like, but, you know, I may, may pick up on that. And it's also a link to uh, not only my books, but also my related services, um, which connect you out to another page called liminalreiki.com. That I've kind of kept separate, but it is connected to Chthonia, and that it has to do with the transitional work that I do with people, um, mainly using, like, t- things like tarot and, and other oracles and using Reiki therapy. But I use a combination of things. It's not limited to those two things. It can be either one of just those two things, but I, I also do something a lot more integrated, depending on what the person needs. So you can check that out at liminalreiki.com if that interests you. And again, I'm not seeing people in person right now because of COVID, so everything is done via Zoom or by whatever video conferencing you prefer and it's all done um and, and it all it's all done virtually and um everybody has been very satisfied with the results which you can see on the testimonial page at liminalreiki.com um 
And if you want to follow me on social media, um, it's uh, Facebook and uh, is uh, Cthonia Podcast, two words. Twitter and Instagram, Cthonia Podcast, one word. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, of course, it's Cthonia, just Cthonia, no, nothing else after it. And, you know, and, you know, like I said, follow, you know, follow, subscribe. If you like it, leave a review. Um, anything, you know, anything you want to do, every, every little bit that, that people do um, actually helps a lot. And it helps to... Um, to get, to get the word out to more people. Uh, so I want to thank those of you who have been patrons with me, uh, new patrons and those who have been patrons for a long time and have stuck it out. I thank you very much. And for everybody else who's just listening and tuning in, I hope you enjoyed this. I hope you uh, continue to tune in to new episodes. And I will talk to you in the next episode.